Good morning. I invite our friends who will be heading to uh, Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Psalm 39. Psalm 39. Continuing our series together, Songs for Our Savior, this morning, Jesus, our only hope for value in this life. Beginning in verse 1, for the choir director for Jaduthan, Psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent, I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me, while I was musing the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, Selah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish I have become mute, I do not open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath, Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the impact that it will have in our lives, for you have promised that this would be so. Father, forgive us. When we neglect this gracious gift, Father, forgive us. When we do not apply your truth to our lives, Father, forgive us. When our eyes are turned toward other things, making idols out of that which is good, rather than worshiping you who are truly great. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, this text is a a unique text, and... Uh, The context of it is unusual, but it's helpful for us to understand what's going on. We have the benefit of a superscript here uh, for the choir director for Jeduthun, a psalm of David. And so it's for Jeduthun. Now, who is this guy? He is a prophetic worship leader. Now, I, I had somebody jokingly tell me a bunch of years ago in seminary, Say, look, either be the music guy or be the preacher guy. You don't want a singing preacher and you don't want a preaching singer. 
However, Jeduthun was a prophetic worship leader. When you go back and you kind of see through the Old Testament who he was, that's who he was. He was one of the worship leaders set aside by David who also did prophetic type work. That's, that's what he did. He was gifted primarily in music and praise. Now, Jeduthun is only mentioned 17 times in the Old Testament. Most of them like what we just saw this morning, like in a psalm heading, hey, for Jeduthun, he's the guy who's writing this one. He's directing the choir on this one. He's, it's a, it's a song rights thing. You know, if, if we were doing the, the script in modern style, it's going to have the little C next to it or the little TM or the R, you know, registered for Jaduthan. You know, he's getting 25 cents on the dollar every time they sing the song on the radio. You know, like that's, this is his deal. Okay, so that's a number of times that's him. A handful of times he's named in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Nehemiah, as just one of the choir directors. Like he's just named among a list of guys who are among the choir directors. So how do we gain anything from his name as to what's going on here to help us understand? We're not going to read through all of this. But if we were to have turned back to First Chronicles chapter 14, so you have the enlargement of David's family. Then there's war with the Philistines, and then there's this, this, this regaining of the ark, and the ark's going to be moved to Jerusalem. David had built these large houses for himself, and now he's trying to supply a place for the ark to dwell in Jerusalem. When you get to chapter 16, there is this tent that's made for the ark to rest in, and then there's this psalm of thanksgiving that takes place. And toward the end of 16, it is named uh, Jaduthan, and others are the ones named like leading the praise and that sort of thing for what's going on. If you were to continue through this, then you have the wonderful story in First Chronicles 17 of God making his covenant with um, David and David's response of prayer. And then in 18, there's the expansion of David's kingdom where he starts getting all of these men to follow him who are not just from the nation of Israel and all of these resources and all these supplies, which, by the way, I want to tell you is actually a breakdown in the story of David's life in that moment. Because we, in our cultural context, when we see a great leader amassing for himself great military power and great wealth, we think that that's a sign that he's doing good. Moses said, when you get a king, what is he not supposed to do? Increase the number of what? Horses and chariots and extra soldiers from people from the outside and wives to himself. Like, there's all this stuff he's not supposed to do. And by the time we hit that chapter, David's doing those things. He's violating the covenant of God right in the middle of the greatest victories that he's having. And there's something to be said to that. So then David has some messengers who go off and they're abused and it leads to this conflict and then there's this war with the Philistine giants and then we get to 1 Chronicles 21 where David wants to know how great he really is and he calls for the census that leads to the plague. You say, well, that's a very large context. Yes, the context is helpful. helpful. Why? Because the key story when we're first introduced to Jeduthun is a story of victory. 
David has had great victory in battle. He has finally overthrown the Philistines. He's finally gotten the ark of God back. He has now established his great house. He has now established a tent for the ark to dwell in once again. It's the, it's the story of, 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 of national worship and celebration. It's the story where David's wife gives him a hard time about dancing with all the commoners in great celebration for the great victory that God had brought to his people. This is all that's happening here in this moment. And then right after that, and he gets Jeduthun to write a song about it. And to lead the people in that song. And then right after that, he starts amassing for himself things he's not supposed to amass for himself. And then right after that, his messengers get abused and internal civil war-like conflict starts to take place. And then there's another skirmish with the already defeated Philistines. And then David really wants to know how high of a level his clout has gotten to. And he takes the census that leads to a plague that kills thousands of people. Now I know all of this stretches over a period of time. But we're introduced to Jeduthun in the middle of David's, one of David's greatest victories. And David's on cloud nine. He's riding high. And then we get this psalm. I think, this is just my opinion, one scholar's opinion. I think this should be situated somewhere around 1 Chronicles 21. Because, friend, why should such a celebratory story be coupled with such a sour-feeling psalm? Because this is a very sour-feeling psalm. I don't know if you noticed that as we read it, but there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of sorrow on David's part. Why would Jeduthun, who everywhere we see him talked about in the scriptures, not listed like as the writer of a psalm, but in actual narrative stories, there's always great things going on. And then he gets mentioned and there's this time of praise and celebration. Why would Jeduthun be writing a psalm like this on behalf of David or David writing it for him to set it to music and performance? Why, why would it be that way? Because context helps us to understand Notice what David starts with in this psalm. I will guard my ways. Friends, I want to try to make a connection here. Temptation has the greatest room to work when we are glorying in the comforts of spiritual victory. When everything seems to be going the best for you that it can, you are living in the most spiritually dangerous place that you can be. Because friends, when things are hard, when things are difficult, when you're suffering and you're struggling and everything feels like a battle, you are Always at attention. 
But when things are smooth sailing, with no resistance, and you stand out and you look out, and everything's just as easy as it can be, victory after victory after victory, you get soft. You start believing your own press clippings. And that's what happened with David. Temptation has the greatest room to work when we are glorying in the comforts of spiritual victory. Spiritual celebration is a tenuous thing. We are commanded to rejoice. We are commanded to share in the delight of others. We are commanded to praise the victory and goodness of God. But we are also warned in Scripture to always be on our guard and to give no room to the flesh. It's our flesh that we must not give room to. And our flesh has the greatest room when we are comforted in our own spiritual victories. C.S. Lewis humorously made a comparison to this in his fictional work, The Screwtape Letters. And the complaint from the minor demon to the greater demon was, he's he's become humble. Oh, oh, no, we have him right where we want him. Just make him proud of his humility. It's very easy for our spiritual victories that God supplies on our behalf through His grace to suddenly become our victories. It ceases to be, look at this great thing God has done for me, and it's, look at this great thing that I did with God. It didn't take David very many pages in 1 Chronicles to go from A to B. And so this psalm's context is one of the tenuous danger of losing focus in our spiritual lives when God shows us a kind providence and allows things to go very good for very long. Friends, it is easy to sin with the tongue when all is well. Notice that's what David says. He says, I'll guard my ways. For what end? For what purpose? That I may not sin With my tongue, I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. Why? Because it's really easy to do that when everything's going great. And the easiest way to do that is with the improper attribution of praise. The Pharisees did a version of this. They accused Jesus of being fatherless. We know who our father is. We have Abraham for our father. As if they had anything to do with that. Notice the chief recipient of praise in that story is the Pharisees and their heritage, not the glory of God that he had put them in that covenant life. God was an afterthought in that. God was implied, not explicitly stated. It is very easy to sin with our tongues, to sin with our mouths when things are going great for us. 
There's also the danger, and he mentions this about when the wicked are in his presence. There's also the danger when things are going great for us of demoralizing those that we have had victory over. And I know there's a lot of controversy about this. And I know that there's a lot of different opinions on this. But the greater caution that the Christians should take most regularly is to remember that all people, whether redeemed or not, are made in the image of God. And even if they are wicked people, still deserve some measure of grace, mercy, and compassion from us as we speak to them and of them. You always get way less amens for that in modern American culture than you do other things. You say, but Jesus sometimes ridiculed his opponents. Yes, and he walked on water and uh, turned water into wine and raised people from the dead. And once you're prepared to do these things, you can say whatever you would like. Well, Paul did, yeah, and Paul did some of the same kind of stuff. I am not prepared to do the miraculous, so I should also be a little less prepared to speak very ill of my enemies. Instead, I should strive to do good to those who hate me and to show compassion and kindness to those who stand against me. There is built into this a complacency of comfort. So David says, I will guard my ways. And what was David's chief concern? What did he want to guard his ways against? Well, that's what the rest of the psalm is about. The, the, the very chief thing that he lists That he's concerned about not remembering when things are exceptional and things are great. He calls out to the Lord, Lord, make me to know my end. Friends, when we are in the throes of spiritual victory, we often forget how short our life actually is. We suddenly start thinking That we are invincible. There's two people in the world who always think that they are invincible. The young. I see some of you nodding that I've heard stories from of your more youthful days. I was sharing one at dinner the other night. None of my kids were around and my mother-in-law leaned over and said, please don't tell either of your older boys that story. Because there was a time in my life. When I felt young and was young and thought I was completely invincible. Certainly going down this hill on this contraption that is on fire. No one will get hurt. The young think they are invincible. And those who have just won think that they are invincible. The team that's just had victory. The fighter who has just beaten an opponent. Those who are reveling in victory think that they are invincible. And David had victory after victory after victory. And he turned around and he said, look at all the stuff that I have. No one can beat me. In fact, I tell you what, high priest, I want you to go out and count All of Israel and tell me how many we've got. And they knew that that was wrong. Violation of the law of God. 
Oh, king, don't do something wicked like this. No, no, you go and do it anyway. And by the way, in that text in Chronicles chapter 21, it says Satan compelled David to do this thing. It's clearly not of the Lord. And all that that he had amassed for himself, he lost a large portion of it to God's justice. And so David cries out, make me to know my end. Friends, the good things of God in this realm can often distract our minds from the greater eternal reality. We are living for and longing for the day of the Lord and the future resurrection. Our desire is for our faith to be made sight, not for our faith to be clouded out by our current sight. And this is what David ran into. His faith stopped being a hope for the greater future, a hope for the Messiah, a hope for the glory of God. His faith then became in the things that he could see and touch. His faith was clouded by his sight rather than a longing for it to be made sight one And so David comes to this realization and he makes a declaration here in the psalm that life is short. Notice in verses 4 through 6, Lord, make me to know my end, the extent of my days, how transient I am. Behold, you've made my days as hand breaths. My lifetime as nothing in your sight. Friends, we can't really comprehend it. But when you consider your life, how long it's been to this point, how long it will likely be if God's kind and lets you live a long, full, rich life, you might compare that to others. And perhaps it seems long. I compare my life to some of the small children that I see running around the church. And it seems quite long. I compare my life to some of the people that I've known who've lived into their upper 90s and broken into 100. It doesn't seem quite as long. But friend, have you ever stopped and done what David is doing here and compared the length of your life To the eternity of God. What does he say? My lifetime is as nothing in your sight. It's like a breath. Each man's like a phantom. They make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches. And one of the reasons why I think this should be connected to the overarching chapters in 1 Chronicles. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Look at all my stuff. Let's count all the people. And then God takes it away. He said, oh, you want to be strong for all that you have? I'll bring a plague and I'll kill lots of them. And then you'll die, and you'll leave it to Solomon. And then Solomon will leave it to a split kingdom filled with civil war thereafter. 
And not long after, the whole kingdom will be crushed and you'll all march into slavery, into exile with Babylon. Your life is short. There's an uproar for nothing. There's a massing of wealth for others to distribute. And so the question then is asked by David in this context, where is my hope? And now, Lord, what, for what do I wait? If my life is short and these spiritual victories can lead me to complacency and this suffering can come upon me because of my own idolatrous sin, what hope do I have? And I love David's answer at the end of verse 7. My hope is in you. Friends, should your delight be in your current victory? No. No. Your delight, my friend, this morning should be in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the source of all joy and peace. He is the source of all victories that we have. Friends, we should delight not in the gift. We should delight in the gift giver. Am I glad that Christ has saved my soul? Yes. But friends, on a deeper level than this, I have been made to delight in Christ, not in what Christ has done for me. John Calvin, at the beginning of his institutes, and this is a paraphrase, said that even if there were no hope of heaven, And even if there were no threat of hell, we should still strive to delight in the glory of Jesus Christ alone because He is worthy of our delight and praise. Even if there were no salvation. Even if when our life ended, it just ended. He is worthy. We delight in the giver of the gift, not in the gift. Do we enjoy the gift? Absolutely. Do we take pleasure in the gift? Of course we do. Is the gift a reminder of the greatness of the one who gave the gift? Of course it is. But my delight is to be in the Lord. And David began to find his delight in victory in war and in many horses and in many chariots, and in many conquered peoples, and in a great house, and in a tent for the ark, and all manner of other things. He was delighting in the results rather than in the one who controls all things. And friends, it only takes a moment when we do that. For our attention to turn away from God as our great creator, worthy of worship, to the idolatry of self. Everything that happens in the rest of that chronicle story is because David began worshiping David rather than the Lord. And so he says here in his brokenness, 
My hope is only in you. And then he calls out for God to deliver him from his sins and not to make him a reproach. He even shares that God sovereignly is the one who has orchestrated the shutting of his mouth. And again, another evidence that I think this is pointing back to the the moving of the chronicle story. He calls for God to remove a plague from him. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. And so he asks God to hear his prayer. Can you imagine being Jeduthun? You go back to the chronicle story. There was a great song of Thanksgiving that was written, and Jeduthun was one of the ones responsible for putting on the performance of that song after one of these great victories. And then however many time has, how much time has gone since that occurred, and the great plague comes down on the nation of Israel. David now bringing this song to Jeduthun to perform for the people. Hey, I know the last one that we wrote was a big hit and everybody was super excited about all the victory he had and they played it on KVNE all the time. But I got one now that you need to write that's not going to get any airplay because it's all about how horribly we've messed this thing up. And how God really does need to bring his judgment down on us. And Jaduthan being a prophetic songwriter, prophetic performer of music, He participates with David in this. And they go from singing songs of high praise to singing songs of deep brokenness. That's the danger, friend, of this life. When we begin dwelling on the temporal victories as if they were our own and we accomplished them in our own power in some way, rather than keeping our eyes fixed On the eternal giver of the good gift. And so David says, hear my prayer. Hear my prayer here in verses 12 through 13. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. For I am a stranger with you. A sojourner like all of my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me. Now, clearly that is not a happy gaze. Because the prayer throughout Scripture is that you might be able to see God's face. And David here is asking God to look away. I need you to stop looking at me like this. In the parental terms, he was giving him the eye. If you've never had the eye, and you had a much better childhood than I did. That I might smile again before I am depart. And I'm no more. Friends, the best time to seek the face of God is when you know that your good circumstances have brought you face to face with God. But friends, that is also the easiest time to become distant from God is when God has done great things for you, great good things for you, and you turn your attention to the gift rather than the giver. It is the tenuous catch-22 of God doing great spiritual things in our lives. We run the dangerous risk of bringing attribution of those good things to ourselves. Because at the end of it, we want, as our original temptation said, to be like God. 
We want to sit in his place. We want to take credit for his glory. We want to be sharers in his majesty. And it's such an easy temptation. God goes and does a good thing for us. And we get distracted away from this face-to-face access that we have with God in the middle of this beautiful thing that he's doing for us. And we start clinging idolatrously to this good thing, ignoring the great God who gave it to us. Friends, the best time to seek God's face is when you know his face is right there. The easiest time to turn your face from God's face is when you forget that his face is right there. And this is exactly what happened to David in this psalm. At this time, God had done so many wonderful things for David. And David started to take credit for all of them. It stopped being, look at what the Lord has done. And it started to become, look at what I have done. My friends, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. So what do we do? We do not get distracted from the glory of God himself, even by the glorious good things that he does. My friends, I'm going to tell you this morning as we close, That's really hard to do. That's very difficult to do. It's to not lose focus on the glory and majesty of God in the middle of the best of times. Very hard. Very hard to do. And one of the easiest ways that almost every believer gets tripped up. David said, I will be on my guard. And we should be too. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging truths from your word. Father, thank you for the honesty of saints of old who under the inspiration of your spirit penned for us words like this to warn us of not being distracted even by your goodness to us. For, Father, our hearts are idol-making factories, and so easily can we take a good thing that you have done for us and turn it into our idol. Father, we do it regularly with the best of things in our lives, with our marriages, with our children, with our families, with our jobs, with our health, with our social circumstances. Father, all these good gifts that you give and we in turn elevate them to an idolatrous state. Father, forgive us. Father, help us to always and forever keep our attention not on the gift, but on the giver of the gift. 
For Father, you alone are worthy of our praise, worship, and adoration, regardless of what you do or do not do for us. For in you we live and we move and we have our being. You are the source of all life and existence. Father, you alone are worthy of our worship. Father, guard us, keep us safe, teach us to not be distracted by the shining things of this world, even if you are the one who has given us that shining thing. Father, let our hearts always attend to your majesty and your majesty alone. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together.